10 Minute Talks. A podcast in which the world's leading professors explain the latest thinking in the humanities and social sciences in just 10 minutes. My name is Timon Screech, and I teach the history of Japanese art at the University of London um, at SOAS. And I'm here today to talk to you about um, some research I've conducted recently on the beginnings of the East India Company. And of course, the East India Company would go on to play a very major and some would say extremely deleterious role in world history. But the period I'm looking at from its foundation um, and on the very last day of the year 1600, uh, for about the first 15 or 20 years, it was not in a powerful situation at all. It came into existence in emulation of some very successful Dutch sailings to what they still called the Indies. And the Dutch, of course, were following from the Portuguese. So the English came a little late to the story. And one of the things I've been trying to look at in my work is um, how the English dealt with that. Basically, they were trying to sail to many ports which already had trade with European countries. And the English had to demonstrate that they were well better. Why would a local region, a local ruler want to change in a perfectly viable arrangement that he already had with Holland or with, um, with, with, with Portugal to change the English. The English tried to argue that they, they were better. Uh, and of course, the English went to buy things. Now, the East India Company was created to import spices, which had previously been bought in Venice. And uh, of course, the merchant of Venice is a, is a figure of myth in English history. And going on from Venice, you could go to Aleppo or even as far as Istanbul to get hold of the spices nearer to their sites of production, cutting out the middlemen. And indeed, there was a group that predates the East India Company called the um, Turkey Company, and they did just that. But the Portuguese had discovered already uh, well before this time that you could get to India, the Indies, uh, around the Cape of Good Hope. And the English in due course, um, begin to do that in a formalized way. Uh, and uh, so this first sailing leaves in 1601, and it gets uh, to the Cape of Good Hope and goes pretty much dead straight from there across to where they knew they could obtain spices, which is on the northern tip of Java, where there's the town of Banton. And Banton was under the rule of a of a, uh, a young boy um, ruler uh, and his council who had already admitted the Dutch and saw no objection to the English arriving. The Dutch were not so happy for the English to be there, but there's plenty of spices and uh, there was enough to go around. The Dutch presence was not sufficiently large that they could do much about the English, even if they didn't like them. So the Dutch and the English set up their local trading houses in what was called the um, uh, the Chinese part of the city, in other words, to say the non-Muslim part of Banton, and they bought their mace uh, and cloves uh, and nutmeg. And they also sailed up to Sumatra to the port of Aceh, where they got pepper. Well, it was much cheaper than buying it in, even in uh, Istanbul, and certainly cheaper than buying it in Venice, but it was still quite a long way from the site of production. And so, both the English and the Dutch developed the idea to sail on through beyond Java into the Banda Sea. It's significantly further on. Uh, and buy the spices 
at source, even possibly um, procure the rights and monopoly rights to buy from local viewer and local growers. And the company uh, begins doing this. And, and, and this is well known and it's been written about by other people. I'm a historian of Japan and where um, my sort of um, angle comes in is that the English had bought their spices mostly with silver. That's what the uh, Indonesian, as we'd call them today, Indonesians were accustomed to um, selling things for. And the English got their silver by blagging it from uh, Spanish plate ships, plata ships, silver ships coming back from the Spanish colonies in Latin America. And that was perfectly legal as long as England and Spain were at war. But Elizabeth I, who had incorporated the East India Company, died very shortly afterwards. And the um, new king, of course, was James I of Spain, who immediately, uh, James I of, uh, of Scotland, who immediately uh, created peace with Spain. So stealing from Spanish ships is no longer viable. You could perfectly well buy, Japan, buy Spanish silver and take it out to, um, to, to, to Java and buy with it there, but that interfered with the whole balance of payments. So the company start to um, look for some other product with which they can buy or barter the spices. And indeed, England had one internationally acclaimed, only one internationally acclaimed export product at this time, which was woolen cloth. And so the uh, English go to sell it in Java and the Javanese say it's about 30 degrees outside most of the time. We don't need your woolen cloth. But there is a cold country further north, so sail up there and you'll find it. And that was Japan. So Japan comes in as a market for English cloth and get, guess what? Japan also produces silver. And so the um, company considers a perfect exchange, forget Latin American silver, Japanese silver, bring it down, um, having exchanged cloth for it and sell it to the Japanese. And that's basically the economic side of the story. But the um, cultural side of the story is that the English had to give the Japanese ruler, today we know he's called the Shogun, but at the time the, the English just called him the Emperor of Japan, they better give him some spectacular present to um, persuade them, not only that the English are better than the Dutch, but in Japan, unlike in Java, the Portuguese were there too. And the English produce a telescope. Now, it's the first telescope that was ever built to be a royal level product, a present worth a king. Uh, it was the first telescope, as far as we know, that ever left Europe. And we would like to know why it was selected, what it meant, and what it meant on arrival. Now, unfortunately, we have very few records. The East India Company's documentation is pretty well uh, preserved for some periods, but the period leaving, leading up to the sending of this ship to Japan, we have nothing. Uh, and um, the Japanese side states that they received a telescope and it was a very wonderful thing. The Shogun personally thanked uh, King James I for the gift, as he said, of a thing I have never seen before nor never imagined could exist. Um, well, of course, when you say telescopes, early 17th century, people think immediately about Galileo and his um, findings. He discovered the phases of some planets. In other words, he discovered that planets were not spherical. And this had significant implications for astronomy over the course of the next decades and years and then decades. Of course, Galileo would come to grief because of this. Uh, Galileo's book was immediately sent to King James I, who had considerable academic interests. A telescope was shown to James I in um, spring 
1609, that is documented. And then interestingly, 1613, which is about the time the Shogun in Japan was receiving his telescope, the Lord Mayor's show uh, conducted in London every year, the new Lord Mayor had a spectacular show. And that year, uh, one was shown to the people of London uh, under the title of Truth. Uh, and this would raise some issues. Now, not everyone thought that the telescope was true, highly controversial issues about what we could see. Eventually, people would um, question the telescope's authenticity because it challenged scripture. The scripture clearly says that the sun um, moves. And eventually, of course, it didn't happen overnight and uh, a telescope of 1609, 1610 is not like one we have today, but eventually it would be discovered and proposed and accepted that we have a um, heliocentric world, that um, it's the earth that revolves around the sun, not the sun around the earth. Well, that's the uh, basics of the, of the story, but uh, I flesh it out in much more detail with wonderful anecdotes and, uh, and, and people's machinations and uh, uh, lots of things about the English trying to embarrass the, the Portuguese, especially the Jesuits who were, um, in Japan trying to convert, but also teaching astronomy uh, and science. And um, that, is the, uh, that is the wonderful story that I hope some of you might wish to pursue and read a bit further. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for listening to this British Academy podcast. Please subscribe, share and rate this series from wherever you get your podcasts. For more events and conversations, please visit www.thebritishacademy.ac.uk or find and follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.